the Collective Whisper Podcast with Simon King. Hello and welcome to the Collective Whisper Podcast. I am your host, Simon Kay, and we have another interesting guest for you today to tell us all about his life so far and the interesting things he will be doing with his future and what a bright future this guy may have. So tell you about him in one second. But first, I just want to remind you, if you're enjoying the show and you like the content and you like the guests, please, you know, send us a message, send us comments, reviews. We love reviews. Review the show. Tell us what we can do better. All kinds of things. We love your input and we hope you are enjoying the show and stay tuned. Lots more great guests coming up over the next few months. Moving on to this week's guest. Today, I'd like to welcome Killian Murphy to the show. Dubliner Killian Murphy is an Irish astrophysicist working towards becoming an astronaut with the European Space Agency. Killian grew up bilingual in Mexico, speaking English and Spanish. Today, he also speaks Irish and German. He has been a committee member for several sports and social initiative organizations at university and in the workplace with focuses ranging from martial arts to basketball to green environmental policy promotion. His career ambitions include becoming an ESA astronaut, working at ESOC in mission control for future space missions, or working in astronomical research. Today, the 28-year-old lives and works in Budapest as a process engineer in a biofuels company. He has one main ambition in life, to become an astronaut and be one of the first Irish people to make it into space. Welcome to the show, Killian. Okay, Killian Murphy, welcome to the Collective Whisper podcast. How are you? Good. Thanks very much for having me. Good. It's a pleasure to have you on. Right now, you're, where are you in the world? I am in Budapest in Hungary. I'm, uh, I've been here for the last year or so, working as a process engineer. In all the different kind of work you've had and, and, and your experiences with the ESA and all of this, is it hard to balance the working life and the, the astronaut and research life? Is that difficult? Just at this point in time, it's probably more difficult than ever because I'm still I'm moving away in terms of what I'm doing professionally to make money and, and, you know, earn my living. I'm moving a bit away from space and I'm still doing increasingly more and more in my free time to stay connected with it. So it really is putting a, a big drain on my resources to still pursue what I want to while pursuing what I have to for the time being just to, you know, put food on the table. Yes, I understand. And this is the thing. It doesn't matter, does it, if you're a musician or, uh, you know, an aspiring astronaut or an astrophysicist or whatever. You also have to live and survive. And sometimes these things are, uh, you know, they're they're ambitious and, and they're, some can say, oh, they're dreams. And But, you know, if you want to do them, you still have to be able to survive and live. And unfortunately, that's a hard kind of balancing act, isn't it? Yeah, some people are lucky enough that they're able to follow a career track that keeps them close to what it is that they're trying to do. Uh, not all of us are are so lucky, but everyone everyone has their own path to follow. So long as you know what you want to do, there's always a way to lead back to it. Yes, yes. So, you know, going back a little for you, you know, you in your early years, you know, you lived in Mexico and you lived in Dublin and you traveled around a lot. So tell us a little about that experience. Did you live in Ireland first and then you went to Mexico? No, I was actually born in Germany. Uh, my parents were already traveling around before I was ever born. I'm the eldest child, but they were already traveling around quite a lot before that. 
I happened to be born in Germany. My brother was born in South Africa. My other brother was born in Dublin. So we're a very international family, let's say. Even our relatives are scattered all around the world. Yeah, I. it was, let's say, not the easiest way growing up. Uh, being, uh, traveling around a lot when you're a kid, you don't get to establish the same kind of long-term relationships and lifelong friends that you do when you stay in one place and you know the same people throughout. It has its upsides, you know, there's a strong learning experience. You uh, really grow a lot as a person, especially when you're in, immersed in different cultures, immersed in different languages. Uh, these these are skills that stand to you for the entirety of your life, uh, but it does make the experience of actually growing up somewhat more challenging, I suppose. But anyone who's traveled around as a young child can probably relate to what I'm saying. We kind of have that, like where we, um, my children, we've lived in a few different places in Spain. Now we live in Alicante now, but we lived in Madrid and we lived for a while in Mallorca. But for me, I kind of have that like gypsy blood, nomadic lifestyle. <laughs> and um, it's funny because we were talking about this with our kids one day and, and we were saying, yeah, this kind of lifestyle, like, and, and you know, that we, we only traveled a little bit, but we're here for the last like nearly nine years now. So for your kids, if they are somewhere, they can be getting used to that and getting into that lifestyle. And then if you decide to go somewhere else, it can be a little tough on them because you, you can't bring your friends with you. And, and the older you get, the more difficult it is because you have kind of roots set down, don't you? Yeah, yeah. The longer you're in one place, the more attached you get to it and the harder it is to leave. Uh, but at the same time, if you're if you're not in any one place long enough to actually put down roots, then you feel completely unrooted, ungrounded. So I don't think there's any comfortable middle ground. If you're if you're moving around during formative years, I think it's going to be uncomfortable, no matter what the term of it might be. Your parents are they both Irish or they different from different nationalities? No, they're both dubs. That's both where dubs. me and my brothers got our nationality out of having been born elsewhere. Okay, okay. And it's quite interesting because we've just had a new baby just bef uh, just at Christmas time there. In Spanish law here, even though your child is born in the country, they're not Spanish. They're Irish nationality because of the parents. Or they're Like, for example, my wife is Polish and, and I'm Irish. So, But the child is down mm -hmm. as whatever nationality of the parents, you know, and whatever you so you kind of think, oh, if the child is born there, they'll have that nationality. But there's different laws in different countries, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, indeed. Likewise, I do not have German nationality and I'm not entitled to it unless I lived there for seven years. So you were born in Germany. And when you were in Germany, then how old were you when you, you know, from a baby? Then how long did you stay and where did you go to next? I would have only been there for the first year-ish of my life. But by the time I was 12, I had lived in Ireland, Mexico, the United States, South Africa, Japan, and of course, Germany. So I, I'd been to a good number of places exposed to a wide variety of languages, even at a very young age. So at, th at that stage, I was already fluent in Spanish and uh, English. Uh, that was the age that we left Mexico and moved back to Ireland. And we were kind of finally in one place a bit longer term. It is quite interesting, as you say, like when you hablas un poquito de español, when you speak the language, um, for you being there as a child, uh, it must have been like, you know, kids are like sponges and they soak it up. But did you find it difficult when when you went to Mexico? You Were you, what, five or six at that? Or what age were you when you went to Mexico? Yeah, I was about five years old when we went there. So it was extremely challenging arriving as a child, not able to communicate with your peers. You can't 
as we were saying about putting down roots, it's, it, you can't make those friendships. You can't establish those connections in the beginning because you can't talk to the people around you. So it is very difficult. Yeah, because I see with, with my kids now, my daughter's 11 and, you know, she speaks amazing Spanish and my son is eight and he came here when he was two months old. So he's lived his whole life in Spain. But he's still a very Irish boy <laughs> because of the, the, you know, the environment he lives in. And um, so it's quite interesting how they adapt to the language. And you hear <laughs> you hear children, you know, and they're bilingual. And when you listen to them, you think they're Spanish. And then you hear them saying, oh, there's a, you know, speaking in Irish. And you're kind of like, wow, that's it's strange to hear the accent so different. Yeah. No, I get that as well. And then uh, I guess other people who are multilingual will also relate to it's not it's not just accents and, and things, but different languages have another way of thinking. You, know, you often find that your your personality almost shifts a little bit when you're speaking another language, when you get to the point that you're thinking in another language. Yeah, I have that problem with it. my humor in English or Irish English as well is very different to in Spanish. So I would have had a kind of a dark black humor all my life. But then when I was learning Spanish, I was like, I don't know how to do this in Spanish, you know, because, you know, the sponge is not ringing out properly. And, and even now, I mean, my Spanish is so much better after nine years here. But the thing is, I wouldn't tell the same kind of jokes or stories in the same way. So I agree with you totally that it depends on the culture, doesn't it? And, and what what's kind of like, for example, my wife used to say to me, mm, maybe your humor, they mightn't yeah. get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, you hear that a lot about Irish people where the kind of way that we would interact with one another can seem very strange to foreigners. So when you were in Mexico, you know, obviously living in Mexico, were you exposed a lot to that Mexican culture or was it more like kind of in, a, in an Irish or English school or did you did you feel like you were part of it? It was kind of very much a middle ground between all of that. So we we were definitely oddballs over there. My parents were, uh, let's say, very good at the old socializing. So we were very embedded in the Irish community in Ireland. They were members of the, the Irish society, regularly attending events at the Irish embassy, um, even helping to organize things like that sometimes. Through the Irish embassy, my parents, not, not the whole family, but they had dinners with the president of Mexico and all sorts of mad stuff like that. And at the same time, we'd be utterly baffling to the wealthy, well-to-do Mexican society that we found ourselves in because we'd also make friends of, you know, the, the staff. You, you know, in, in Mexico, it's a very two-tiered society where you've got the haves and the have-nots. You're living in mansions or you're living in mud brick houses on the outskirts of the city. There's not much in between. So we, we lived that high life paid largely by the company rather than us directly that my dad worked for. And uh, so we, we lived in that upper society of these immensely rich people. But at the same time, we didn't view ourselves in the same way. We weren't from that culture. So we still made friends with the staff that helped to like clean the house or drive the cars or whatever. And we would go to their parties and, and have uh, and have events with them, invite them along on our holidays, which was not something that wealthy Mexicans ever really did. So they didn't really know what to make of our family, of my parents, of us, where we would have friends who were who were poor, who didn't know if they would yeah, go right. to school all the way through versus friends who had basketball courts and swimming pools and three-story mansions and three tiers of gardens with one dedicated to their dog graveyard, you know, mad stuff. Yeah. And and that it must have been very strange coming back because you were there about five years, weren't you? Maybe so. It must have been strange coming Good back. Seven years. Seven, yeah. So it must have been strange coming back to Dublin 
and from that environment and like, you know, getting into Irish life again, no? Yeah, I mean, it, it had interesting challenges. We did regularly visit home and keep in touch with the family. So it wasn't entirely alien as though we were coming as Mexicans or something. But we it was it was an interesting challenge in that I'd been living in Mexico so long, I was almost more comfortable speaking Spanish than English by that stage. I definitely didn't know all the turn of phrase uh, of of Irish people. You know, I, I'd, I'd speak fine and get along with my cousins, but sometimes they'd come out with a word like minger or something that I, I hadn't heard anyone ever say in, in Mexico or any of the people I'd be speaking with uh, as a kid over there. So I'd be like, what the hell are they talking about? And sometimes they'd, you know, in school, people would kind of take advantage of that and completely make up words just to have a laugh at my expense because I, I didn't know if it was a word or not. I think that's the really interesting thing because you can be fluent in the language and native in the language, but if you're not living within that community, you you probably found you knew more urban Spanish than you did urban English. So when you come home, as you the, the kids would be like, oh, he doesn't know what that means. And every few years, slang words change. So it's it's like I always say to people, you know, Spanish people, when they are talking about learning English, I say the thing about phrasal verbs or anything like that, you have to live in the place to learn slang. You have to live in the place. And it's like learning Spanish when you're in Mexico or you're in Madrid and you live within the cities, wherever, then you learn all of that kind of local lingo. Yeah. But it's strange then coming back to Ireland for you and them talking about mingers and you're like, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's it's strange coming to a place that you consider home and feeling a little bit out of odds. Right, right. And the other thing as well is that possibly in the school you went back to, there was Spanish and stuff, but a lot of our schools don't teach Spanish. So it, it might be very hard to continue your Spanish studies. <laughs> yeah, I actually, I mean, there's plenty of Spanish speakers. So I, occasionally I'd hear someone speaking Spanish in a supermarket and just say hi, just, I don't know, yeah. uh, an interest in practicing the language a little bit. But I actually managed to get away with uh, being in Spanish class in secondary school and doing it for the leaving, which just meant I had, I had a nap essentially uh, scheduled. <laughs> oh, I understand. Yeah. Don't tell the teacher how good I am. Well, they, they, they knew well enough. They knew to leave me alone. In fact, my, my brother would uh, argue with his Spanish teacher and get in all sorts of trouble because uh, her his Spanish was better than hers and she really didn't appreciate him correcting her. <laughs> we see that here a little bit sometimes in school. So sometimes these teachers, they're a bit threatened by someone who can be better than them in, than in the class, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, I can understand when it's your profession and you have a child showing you up that, that can be very uncomfortable. Moving around like that, there comes a point when you get to a certain age where maybe you do say to your parents, I, I don't want to continue traveling or, you know, maybe your parents retire and they settle down. But if they don't, there's probably a point when you're 17, 18, you're like, I want to go to college. I want to stay here. Yeah, I mean, it, it didn't get to the point where I had to ever uh, put my foot down on without going into too much detail of how we ended up settling. It, it kind of happened on its own. Um, I, yeah, I was 12 when we moved back to Ireland and we stayed there fairly long term. So I wasn't quite old enough to start demanding stability in my life. I know here I work as a teacher here and um, I've taught kids in the past and their parents would be, let's say, ambassadors or working as diplomats and that kind of stuff. Every three years, you know, they move around to different places. And, you know, sometimes it's, they'd be saying, I don't want to go. I'm really happy here. And, you know, and then what they I think what one of them told me was that 
her, I can't remember, her, the, I'm not sure whether it's Spanish or the uh, Mexican or something, but she told me that when when the kids reach 18, then the state or whatever stops providing for the fa- for the children, you know? And she said, so, you know, sometimes there can be problems there as regards, you know, the whole bringing your kids with you after 18. And so, so there's a lot of complicated stuff with it too, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. Well, we didn't get into too much of that because I don't think we had any stage paying our way to go around. But yeah, yeah oftentimes <laughs> we were financed. All of our moves were paid for by the company uh, as part of the relocation package for us. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, very good. And so when you came back to Ireland then, like your teenage years, because you were getting into kind of 12, 13, going into first year probably. And so like you, you settled back into Ireland and did you kind of think to yourself, okay, what do I want to do here? What's my, you know, ambitions? Am I, I you were inter- interested in physics and, you know, science and this kind of stuff. So what kind of got you on that track to doing what you're doing now? It's a little hard to say when exactly it, it happened. It's an interest I've always had, but when I got set properly on the track, I'm, I'm less certain on. Uh, I, I was going into um, fifth class by the time I moved back to Ireland, so not quite in it, straight into secondary school. Um, gave me a little bit of an opportunity to get my ha- get my head around uh, learning Irish as well before I had to do okay, uh, yes. start into le- junior cert, even cert stuff. But um, it's it's a, a kind of science and space and and that curiosity for. Uh, I don't know, just learning how things work has kind of always been there. And, and my particular angle on it, because, of course, I think a scientist of any vein or even a medic or whatever, they'll all have that kind of sense of curiosity. But somehow space always held a special fascination for me. Um, I, I've, I've told this story, I don't know, maybe too many times, but my mom loves to tell it. So I'll keep telling it for her, is um, when I was maybe only three or four years old, I was once brought to a bookshop and told, I could have a, my pick of like any book in the entire shop. And I came back with a big encyclopedia of space. And that was my choice as a three-year-old. So it's definitely something that I always had kind of a connection with. Really? Um, definitely the decision to pursue physics in particular happened sometime in, in secondary school, sometime during leaving cycle, I, I reckon. Um, partially because I had a very good uh, physics teacher who helped encourage me uh, and get me excited about the subject. Um, less so because I had a poor maths class and I really struggled with my applied maths I was doing outside of school because we were a bit behind schedule. And so we hadn't seen some of the calculus or things that I needed for the applied maths. So, you know, pros and cons. But by that stage, I had a good idea. I wanted to go that way. I guess going into leaving, you have to start thinking about these things like what do I, what classes do I need to take and so on. So by then, I was already forming the picture that I'd go into physics. Um, it was only when I then finished and went to university that I expanded then, like narrowed down further rather from from physics to I got into my first choice course in UCD to do physics. But there's three different physics degrees that you can do. So I could have done experimental physics, theoretical physics or space science. And I mean, other people might not see as much of a difference or, you know, might heed a different calling to me but to me it was an easy decision between those three options that I was going for the space and um, that was also I took another piece of my mom's advice the three-year-old child in you was like no no I know what I'm gonna do 
yeah. They were talking to my ear, all right. I was going to say to you there, sorry, about um, the maths and physics things. That that always kind of uh, is a curious question because, you know, you always assume astrophysicists and physicists have to be amazing at maths. But for some kids, maths is a struggle. And, you know, we always assume when we see, you know, scientists, oh, they must be brilliant at maths. But I'm, I'm assume there's a lot of kids who don't like maths at all and hate maths, but maybe love the idea of being a scientist or being a physicist. And, you know, maybe even they want to do quantum physics or anything like that. But with all of that, you need to have a good foundation and ground roots in maths, don't you? You, you do, although I could maybe be a bit of a beacon of hope for, for any kids out there like who don't have the best relationship with, uh, with maths and struggle with it and they don't enjoy it. I never enjoyed maths per se. Uh, in, in school, like secondary school, uh, I got good grades in it or whatever, but it wasn't my best, my best subject. In fact, uh, for what it's worth, my worst grades on, in the Leaving search were physics and maths. And I am a professional astrophysicist. So for, for what that's worth, wow. uh, it's not it's not down to the <laughs> grades. It's down to the passion, the motivation to work through the difficult subjects because it's what you want to do. Yes. And, and I think an important point is you don't always have to be top of the class to end up in that profession because, you know, there's, there's such a thing in exams as the pass, you know, the passing grade. So if you pass the subjects and you get your, you know, average and you can get the diplomas or whatever you need to get, you can say, oh, maybe I wasn't as amazing at the academic stuff, but I have that passion for it. So I can turn that into something. Something that I think probably most professionals would appreciate is that exams are not a great way of judging a person's ability or skill or talent, their capacity to do a job. It's a, it's an unfortunate fact of, of the way our education system works that we, we don't really do justice to what a person is capable of with the way that we examine people and, and test them. So absolutely, just because you're not getting the best grades and certainly you don't need to be top of any class in order to be really successful and do a great job at what you want to do. Yeah, you know, that's right, because you we make assumptions in life on certain careers and certain jobs. And, you know, you I, I actually saw something a few weeks ago and it said that, uh, you know, this expression, you know, it's not rocket science. And uh, somebody said or so, the, the person had said there's no there's no difference in the intelligence of a rocket scientist and somebody, for example, uh, a janitor or a, a cleaner, the difference is the study and the ag academic approach and the years of training make the difference because we always make the assumption, oh, they have to be geniuses, but not everybody's a genius. And you can take the janitor and make him into an astrophysicist if he goes on the right path and he has a passion for it, no? I'd actually, I'd agree almost completely with that. I, I, everyone has their different callings and different talents. So I'm not saying that anyone could or should be an astrophysicist. Yeah. But I don't believe that there's a fundamental difference in one person's intelligence compared to another. We're all capable of the same things. We just need to find our calling in life. Yeah, exactly. Because I think sometimes, you know, in the past, we've, we have had academic snobbery and we've had this kind of thing where, you could have somebody who was a plumber or a carpenter and somebody who's in in college and you you know th those two people mightn't be may, mightn't think oh i'm more intelligent than him or vice versa 
But other people kind of might do that or parents might be like, oh, well, now he's very, he's great. He's gone to college and he's done that. But, you know, we all know lots of people go to college and do nothing with their lives, you know. So the thing about it is when you can take something that's challenging like maths or physics and and, you know, plow through it, get it done, get the grades you need to move into that area of training. And then you can start maybe really coming into your own, can't you? Yeah, and uh, you've got me thinking that, you know, an excellent example of what you're saying is one of the most famous scientists that's ever been, Albert Einstein himself, was working as uh, as a patent clerk and doing his research completely unsupported, unfunded in his free time because it was something that fascinated him. He didn't have any of the backing that professional scientists did until he started taking his findings to to others from the work that he'd done pretty much off his own back. He would have been one of these people that the academic snobs would have looked down on. Oh, he's just filing my discoveries. Yes, yes. We, me and my me and my daughter had this conversation recently, actually, because I've always kind of been a fan of uh, Nikola Tesla. You know, his work and just his life and that kind of stuff. And uh, uh, it's it's amazing. I think it was once Albert Einstein they asked Albert Einstein who's who's the most intelligent person you know, and I think he said. And asked Nikola Tesla, or he said he made reference to him. But my daughter was studying that in school about Tesla, and it was really interesting. She was talking about him and Einstein and everything. And I was saying to her, it's quite amazing because scientists, you know, and especially legendary scientists and and pe- inventors, so to speak, you know, whether it be Thomas Edison, uh, Tesla, whoever. The thing is, it's all about perspective, isn't it? And and for some people, if they have an interest in one area, maybe Tesla was the king of it. And then others who look at Einstein as the king. So it depends where you're coming from and what you believe in they achieve, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, very much. And even some sometimes people can struggle with having too many interests. You know, when, when you're in these academic fields, yeah. sometimes everything is fascinating and it's really hard to actually keep your focus on one project long enough to discover something within it. And, and I guess uh, the likes of Nikola Tesla would be an example of someone who, who did have that wide breadth of interest. But yes. he managed to narrow down his focus long enough to actually get somewhere with him. Yeah. Well, I, I, I always think with Nikola Tesla, he did all the work and I think now we see it. But it's not he's not credited with. I think this is what happens. I think I think there was a lot of stuff taken from yeah. him after he died and just never credited. So, you know, it, but I think that's the way with a lot of these famous inventors and scientists, somebody else prospered off their work or took the credit. No, I think that this is true. And it's a shame that Tesla didn't get the recognition that he deserved in his time. Uh, and that he didn't get to live longer to do more of what he was doing. Yeah. But at the same time, I think it's worth noting that this is also true, uh, much more so, of many female scientists, engineers, researchers, historians throughout the ages who have yes, no recognition yes, yes. and will never know their names because their their discoveries and their work were taken from them. No, you're right because you know we we the the Marie Curie kind of get put out in school as like a token thing, but imagine all the other famous scientists and inventors who were female who weren't shown because it's like even now we have this thing at the moment where you know they asked Andy Murray how does it feel to win two 
two of these titles. And he said, he said, nobody's ever done it. And he said, well, what about the Williams sisters? They won four of them. So unfortunately, <laughs> the media and the, the, the mainstream media sometimes can point it always in the, the direction of men. And look what they've achieved. But somebody else probably had achieved that before that. And that was probably a woman. So I do agree with you in that sense. There is probably, in, through the annals of history, there has been many women who have achieved much more or the same or whatever, but have never been recognized, no? Mm-hmm. And, and luckily, we, we, uh, some of the more recent examples to maybe the, the 20th, 19th centuries, we, we have been able to give that recognition back to women for their accomplishments that were misappropriated from them. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. but it's worth remembering that just because the names that we know are predominantly men doesn't mean that women weren't there. They just yes. weren't given the recognition. Yeah, yeah. Well, th- well, that's it. And as we said, in those times, there was people who stole other people's ideas and went on to be famous for that. And those people suffered at the hands of those, you know, patent thieves and invention, inventor thieves and everything. So, of course... If men were being stolen from, I'm sh- I'm sure there was many women that had their ideas stolen too and never credited for. For sure. Tell me this then, you know, obviously growing up, I see you have a lot of interests and, and, and I see there, for example, you you had an interest in martial arts and I, I myself, uh, I, I studied martial arts for a long time. And it's really interesting because when I was researching you and I came across the Bujinkan Brian Dojo and I was like, wow, I haven't heard that name in a long time. And I'll explain how I used to know it was when I was when I was younger, I studied Shotokan for years and I got my black belt in it and I studied other martial arts. And, um, you know, I was always kind of looking, then dabbling in other. And I remember I used to have all these books at home on um, ninjutsu and taijutsu and stuff that I was just reading myself. And my sister, even to this day, if she sees something about ninjas or she's always sending it to me, I'm like, what are you doing? And she's like, you love all that. And I'm like, no, I like it's. I, 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 of course, I watched the ninja movies and stuff, but I just liked the whole um, thing. And I remember there was a famous <laughs> book. What was the guy's name? Um, it was like an, an American, um, an American guy who kind of was doing taijutsu and ninjutsu years ago in the 70s and 80s. Do you know? Uh, he's a beard. Um, I can't think of his name, but it was a really amazing book. And that kind of piqued my interest in it. But I remember I was living in Galway at the time and there was no clubs. And then I remember looking at clubs in Dublin and there was the Bujink and Brian Dojo. And I I think you mean the Bujink and Carroll Dojo. Yeah, Brian Carroll Dojo. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So so you, you trained there, didn't you? I did, yeah. Now I got into that through the, the the ninjutsu club in UCD, actually. That's how I got introduced to it, because in, uh, the club is called ninjutsu, just to make it a little bit easier to understand, because yeah. Bujinkan, Budo Taijutsu means nothing to anyone. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, because I always call it Bujinkan, but it's Bujinkan. Is that the proper... Bujinkan, yeah. I mean, uh, I'm not a native Japanese speaker either, so I'm no authority on how to pronounce it. No, no, but but that's the thing with Japanese names, isn't it? The short names like Hajime and Yama are easy, but the longer ones, it's how you pronounce them. And am I wrong in saying that there was the uh, Bujinkan Brian Dojo near Croke Park there somewhere, near Gardner Street, no? Or or is that? It, it has moved around quite a lot. So the, the, okay. the main base, let's say, for intake into the club is through the UCD club. 
Um, but okay. because we just kind of like rent training spaces, even in the time that I was in Dublin and training with them, I think we we moved our uh, where we were training three or four times. So uh, being next to Coke Park would have been before my time, I guess. Now there are there are several Bujinkan dojos in Dublin at this stage, uh, so uh, there may even still be another one near Coke Park. There's one that I know that, yeah, I, as far as I know, is still active right next to Stephen's Green. But um, okay, I, I definitely okay. had great experience with the Carroll Dojo through UCD. What kind of piqued your interest in martial arts, and 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 more specifically, then why did you say, okay, I'm going to do, you know, the the Brian Carroll Dojo, or why not? other things what made you choose um well i did I, I got originally introduced into martial arts when i was young in mexico um i did taekwondo then uh, because i was getting bullied and bet uploads in school so i kind of wanted to learn to defend myself so that's how i first got into it but i didn't really get yeah immersed in it then at that stage to me it was difficult it was challenging i didn't have a good relationship with uh, with the teacher i i was not really getting into it as much. I, I was there because I wanted, wanted to learn to defend myself and I wasn't feeling like I was learning that in the moment. Or like, if you want to immediately apply martial arts, that's just not going to happen. That's not the way it works. It's a long road. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But then, so I had a very different relationship coming back to it than when I was in Ireland. I didn't train for years. Uh, started in university and was like, I'd, I'd really like to do a martial art again. So I actually signed up to a few of them. I tried the karate. I went back to the Taekwondo. I tried the ninjutsu. Um, and uh, in fact, the ninjutsu was one I signed up to kind of almost as a joke with a few friends from my class. We're like, ah, let's yeah. all go become ninjas. It'd be, be a bit of crack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. Uh, but I ended up loving it. I was really, really interesting. It was, uh, it's actually, uh, rather than you know, competitive like the Taekwondo or the Karate, it is very much geared yeah. towards self-defense and practical applications. So that actually really stood out to me. And, and I was really interested in that. The fact that you are learning techniques that are designed to be like hyper effective to the point that you're very careful learning them so that you don't injure your training partners. Uh, and, you're, and you kind of, as you get better at it, you scale up the intensity that you do it at. So that you're, you're like your teachers are more and more confident that you can rein it in before you go too far. Um, I was very lucky that. Yeah, because it's about control then. Yes. Yeah. Because you, you, you learn techniques that can very easily get out of hand and you need to be managed until you learn that level of control. Um, but it, uh, to me, that was uh, very interesting because it's not just, you know, learning motions and here's how to punch and here's how to kick. But the mechanics, there's you're. I guess coming at it from the scientific mindset of like I'm learning how humans work and how they don't work and how to take advantage of that. And there's also a lot of it's not just the practical side of martial arts, but the uh, the Khan also has a sort of a Shinto spiritualist philosophy built into it. So we learn a little bit about that. It's not just about how to fight, but how to live, how to avoid fights, how to uh, interact with one another, read other people. Uh, we learn about, uh, let's say, shiatsu, massaging ourselves to loosen up and warm up our bodies and whatever, but then you can do that for others. Yes, yes. It's a more spiritual side and connecting with your own self as well. That's the thing. Absolutely, yeah. And that's something I didn't find. It's not to say it's not there, but it's not something I personally found in other martial arts. So it was very interesting to me. The, the problem is, the problem with martial arts 
And it's kind of, it's with a lot of things in life now. Everything has become more disposable and everybody wants, you know, the instant gratification of things. So, you know, nowadays, obviously, the MMA and the UFC is very popular because people can kind of go into the club and straight away, you know, like after a few weeks, maybe go fighting, you know, they're going sparring straight away. So in a lot of other clubs, you have to, you know, learn the techniques and what what the the non-practitioner sees with MMA is like, oh, here's two guys fighting. But what they don't usually realize is those guys have trained in other art forms like boxing, wrestling, you know, taekwondo, different things. And they are pretty good at it. And then they adapt it for that style. So unfortunately, you know, the the Japanese arts and the other kind of martial arts suffered at the hands of this because people go, why Why would you need to learn karate or ninjutsu or any of these for years to, to be able to do those things when you can learn them quickly, you know, from those other things? So there's this kind of a, a misconstrued perspective of martial arts in a way because people think, oh, yeah, I can go down and learn MMA and be as good as that in two or three weeks, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree with you. It's... Uh... That, that instant payout is something that's kind of like hitting us on every front where it's almost being hardwired into our brains with apps and all sorts of entertainment geared specifically towards hooking us in that way. But uh, I think the the difference that a novice doesn't see from the outside uh, between all these different, these different martial arts is the risk of going into MMA and throwing yourself in the deep end is so much higher. Like you're going to come out injured. And the, the, the idea that you're going to come out learning anything much from that experience is questionable. You know, you may or you may not. But if you go to a good teacher in a traditional martial art, it might go slow. It might take a long time before you feel like you're actually going to do anything with it or could do anything with it. But that teacher is making sure that you go about it the right way, that you're safe as you learn and that when it comes time to apply it, that you're also not going to damage someone else in a way that you don't intend to. Yeah, and the other thing is sometimes the point is lost in that these things are not just about defending yourself or not just about, you know, attacking or anything. It's it's a total art form. So when you go in there as a teenager, I, I remember I started training when I was like 14 and I started training with somebody and then they finished. I decided, will I continue? And I said, I'm going to keep going. And... Then what you realize years later is that that gave you a new perspective on life and it taught you that little discipline and it taught you how to control your own emotions as well. Because, you know, being a teenager, you're full of hormones, you're full of energy, and sometimes it can be negative. And if you can have that environment where you can let that energy out and you can also learn to respect people. And if you hit someone by mistake in the face, you're like, oh, I'm sorry about that. Rather than, you know, so I think sports like boxing and karate and taekwondo and all all martial arts, whether they're effective or not in the street, they teach people a lot about themselves and control. Yeah, I agree completely. So for you, the other thing, obviously, with training with ninjutsu is that maybe in the 90s, you know, with with ninja movies and 80s with ninja movies, it was harder for people that were studying, you know, the bunjinkan or the taijutsu, because maybe then the name ninjutsu for some people were thinking it was kind of a joke. Oh. He's training to be a ninja. So I, I imagine that was quite difficult for some practitioners because they might say I'm studying taijutsu rather than ninjutsu. No? 
Well, as I say, the actual name of it, or as you know, anyway, is is Bujinkan, and we really just call it ninjutsu to give yeah. uh, the the uninformed a better yeah. idea of what it is about. You know, it, it it is based in Japanese martial arts. It is based in traditions that come from the ninja. We don't call ourselves ninja necessarily per se, uh, because you know that was more of a career than necessarily a practitioner. Uh, yeah, art. yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. But so we we studied those art forms, those combat techniques, and also that lifestyle, that philosophy that surrounds it all. And that's something I would add to what you were saying is that anyone teaching martial arts and not teaching why you would use martial arts is doing their students a disservice. Martial arts is more about is about much more than just fighting. It's about why you would fight. Yes, yes. And so you mentioned something earlier, and uh, it was kind of it struck a chord with me about these scientists and all of the different interests and passions and hobbies. And I, I'm kind of like that in my life, where I love doing different things and challenging myself. But I think you're very much like that, and even maybe way more so because I've seen all the associations you've been in, and especially in college, you've been in all these different sporting associations and college, you know, clubs and everything. So is it something for you that it? challenging yourself all the time you're like i think i can do that i want to do that but it's hard to find the time <laughs> finding time is definitely a challenge <laughs> i'll give you that much i, I do like yeah. stepping outside of my comfort zone and trying new things and exploring new things i do like to dive deep into them so it's maybe not such a huge high turnover but i like to try a new thing here and there and really give it socks dive into it deep give it a good run uh, I, and I've discovered all sorts of weird and fun things like underwater hockey that some people would never, most people have probably never heard of. But it is great work. I know somebody whose brother plays that in England and she was telling us about it. And we were like, really? And she was like, yeah, it's like becoming a thing now. And we were like, yeah, but it's a very minority, isn't it? I, it's small, but I'll tell you, it's a great workout and it's a lot of fun. Okay, that's interesting. Underwater hockey, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the cool thing about college clubs and associations. Some two guys or two girls can get together and say, hey, let's start doing these th two things we love. And then other people go, hey, I love that too. So it, it's a great chance for these clubs to kind of prosper and grow, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. But I try to do it a bit everywhere that I go. Uh, unfortunately, being a working person makes it a lot more challenging time-wise. University is definitely the golden age for exploring what's out there. Yes, yes. But ev everywhere that I go, I try to do new things or, or really immerse myself in what there is to do around me. Just finishing on the martial arts thing, do you still train or is it hard to find the time? Uh, I, this is a, a sore subject for me because I actually I got my black belt in Bujinkan just before I left Ireland to uh, come work in Hungary the first time. And I did. I had every intention of continuing to train. I really didn't want to be one of those guys who gets a black belt and walks away forever. But I, I trained in a couple of dojos just trying them out here and I got very busy with work and didn't actually end up signing up to any of them full time. I went to Spain and I was looking again and I was like, ah, shit, everything is half an hour away. And by the time the training session is over, all the buses have stopped and I have no way to get home. And so, okay, I'll, I'll have to wait till I move. I can't do it straight away. But six months from now, I'll move and I'll be closer to the places or I'll get my own car or, or rather than the bike, I'll upgrade to a motorbike and I'll be able to do this on my own. But it didn't, didn't, didn't work out that way. Now I'm back in Budapest, but uh, pandemic meant that everything was shut down and then now I'm moving up in the company and I'm too busy I'm getting home at eight every night there's no way I can go and do everything so it's rough 
It's crazy. And, you know, here's something I always believe. I, I have this thing in my life. The, the word connection is something that I, I always kind of say to people. It, it's amazing how you find connections that you never realized before. And today, when I was researching you, I found a connection. But it, it's not, it, I suppose it's not an obvious connection, but um, it's a connection nonetheless. You were, you were working in the ESA in Villafranca de Castilla, yeah? And we were living there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you know that the space agency was just around the corner? <laughs> My wife was teaching one of the guy's children. His name was David from Scotland. I, don't, I can't think of his last name. He was a Scottish guy and he was a rocket scientist. Not ringing any better Scott. His wife was Portuguese. Uh, people move around a lot in ESA, so it's possible you yeah. were in another place by the time I was there. I don't know how long ago this would have been. They're living back in Portugal now, but I remember I met him a good few times. Very nice guy. And uh, But it's very funny. The, the funny story is that just down the road from the ESA, you have, there's a school there, Sec Castillo. And this was, I actually worked there for a year, but my wife um, was teaching there for five years and my kids went to school there. You know, we knew all the area and we used to sometimes cycle by this ESA space agency there. And, you know, there's like a dirt track. We used to go up there on our bikes and everything and uh, mountain biking. But when my wife was teaching, this guy, David, her son came in or his son, sorry, came into the class and they were asking everybody, what does your daddy do? What does your mother do? Yeah. And he's what the boy said, well, my daddy builds rockets. And my wife thought he was joking. You know, she was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. When he came to the school, she said, oh, it was so funny yesterday. He was saying, my daddy builds rockets. And he said, I, I do, yeah. And she's like, oh, really? I thought he was joking. He said, no, no, I, I'm, a, I'm a rocket scientist. And she said, I really feel embarrassed now because I thought he was like just, you know, dreaming or making it up. And she said, he, you actually are. And we became friends with them after, but it was always very interesting. You know, like if someone says to you, I'm a, I'm a secret agent, like, yeah, sure you are. Of course you are. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Is that that's your hobby? Yeah, yeah it, it can be one of those things where people don't take you seriously on the first take. It's like, yeah, I'm an astrophysicist. Uh, yeah, but what do you really do? <laughs> on that part there, uh, when you were living in uh, Madrid, were you there for a year or two? How long were you there? I was there for two years. I was a national, an Irish national trainee with the European Space Agency, which meant I had a one to two year contract. I could minimum one year. And if they liked me well enough, I could get a second, but there was no extending it beyond that. Let's talk a little about, because I always wondered, you know, I never, I was unlucky enough not to ever get a tour or anything in there. But I always wondered, you know, with that whole process of, um, you know, the Irish astronauts and other other countries and with the European Space Agency. So there's a lot of simulated missions and there's, you know, things that are done training for future missions. So explain to us kind of the when you were there, what kind of things you did. Well, okay, that kind of feels like three very different questions, actually, to be honest. It might not seem like it from your side. But if you can. So there's what I was doing when I was working in Spain in ESAC. Yeah. There's mission simulations, and then there's actual what they do with the astronauts, which is all different things. So when I was working in, in ESAC, I was working with the Science Operations Center for the Gaia space mission, which is uh, one of ESA's flagship. It, well, it's a space telescope. Satellite. Um, it is It is a satellite, but not like directly here nearby. Okay. It's, it's a bit farther away to give it a better view of, of space with less interference from Earth, but still uh, using Earth as kind of like a, a big shield to block the sun out at least. 
But so this is an incredible mission. It's one of ESA's flagship missions to map the Milky Way, to map uh, 1 to 10% of the stars, their positions and movements of all of the stars in the Milky Way. And that happens to then be, for the first time, a large enough fraction that we can start to model the movements of the entire galaxy and understand our place in it far better than we've ever been able to do before. Now, understanding our own galaxy happens to be much more difficult than studying other galaxies because we're inside of it and we can't get that outside perspective and everything is in the way. Gaia is doing an incredible job of giving us this access to the dynamics and the history of our place in the universe. And it's so sensitive, so accurate that for the first time we can do astrometric detections of exoplanets, which means that we can see the tiny wobble of a star from a planet going around it with with high enough precision that we can tell that that planet is there. Just the, the gravity hey. of the planet pulling it one way or another as it's flying through space, we can see that tiny wobble of it as it goes. Wow. You know, obviously, when, when you're looking at astrophysics and you're dealing with things, you know, millions of light years away, when it comes down to the telescopes and what they see and how far away they see it and so on, uh, there must be like, some serious calculation because you have to deal with something that mightn't be there anymore. I mean, you know, like this saying where they say we you see a star and it's already dead. When you're talking about astronomical different distances, you, you get to a point where time is the same as distance. If you're looking at something right. one light year away, it's also what you're seeing is one year in the past, whatever that light was emitted a year ago. So okay. it, the time and distance become equivalent when you're looking deep into space, uh, which is also why then we're, when we do deep sky imaging, we're looking at the intense past, the, the, the original light from the beginning of the universe, or let's say not, not quite the beginning, but uh, very early times in the universe when uh, right, very early on light couldn't travel through the universe and then uh, conditions changed. So up to very, very early times in the universe, we can pick, image that. And that's actually how we develop a lot of our understanding of the, uh, the evolution of the universe and how it all started is we can actually look quite far back just by imaging the okay. farthest, faintest light that we can see or looking at the whole sky in general. Yeah. So when we see a picture, you know, whether it's like on a long exposure or whatever, when you see a picture of the stars, okay, and when those satellites and telescopes take those pictures, um, you don't ever really say, like, if it's very specific, they might say, you know, this is so many million light years away or whatever. But a lot of the time when you're looking at those pictures, that's something from a previous time, isn't it? Uh, yes, it, it is and it isn't in so far as we'll never be able to experience anything other than observing it here and now. So it, that is our present. Yeah. But the light that we're seeing is millions of years old. So whatever whatever may be there physically in distance is dramatically different from what we can ever hope to see and observe and study in a million years. The future humans wow. a million years from now will be seeing whatever is the reality there in space, but we'll never know. So it's kind of like somebody taking a long picture over 30 years of themselves. And when they're 30, they say to somebody, here, give that to that person. And when the person receives it, they see a baby, maybe. And then they say, oh, does that what he looks like? And he goes, no, no, he's 30 now. It's just that picture took so long to get to you. But like you're talking on a huge scale. 
it'd be more accurate to say that you took a, a snapshot rather than a long exposure. You took a snapshot of these three. A snapshot, and you yeah. And over 30 years old and 30 years later. That's more like what it is because we're seeing a snapshot that's a million years old. Right, right. Does the telescope, when it takes the pictures, is it building the picture or like from years or is it taking it all in one shot, if you know what I mean? It, it, a little bit of both. Uh, so Gaia, as an example, is actually extremely smart because it's taking so much data that on board the spacecraft, before it sends the data down, it's already pre-scanning and kind of looking in one camera. Okay, there's stars here. So then when the main camera comes across and is imaging everything, it just kind of cuts out where the stars are and dumps the rest of the sky where there's nothing to look at. So you only get the parts that are important to you yeah. uh, to save a lot on the data. You're not looking at all the empty sky. Okay. Um, so that's a very smart uh, data management thing that they do. But uh, in terms of your question, there's also there, it's a little bit of both. You are taking lots of snapshots over time and then you're you're putting them all together. So there's uh, there's long integration where you're trying to see deeper into space or more accurately. Uh, so you want better signal to noise ratio. You'll look at the same star really steady for a longer period of time. So the star stands out better from the background around it. Uh, but then you can also have mosaics where maybe something is too big for the camera that you have. Like a, a nebula can be way, way larger than the field of view of your telescope. So you take a picture of one part and another part and another part and you stitch them together afterwards with software it's kind of like the pa panoramic kind of thing yeah yeah a lot like that uh you can also do image stacking where if you can't do a long integration on one star for long enough for like uh, uh, you can't do it for more than one night for example down on the ground so you look at the same star over and over and over and over again and then you'll stack all those pictures together so you're faking a much longer observing time by looking at it one day and then the next day and putting them together and then the next day and put that one on top as well so that it's as though you've looked at it for longer, even though you took breaks in between. Um, and then uh, again, differently again, you can have multiple images of the same area taken at different times and you see something moving in it. And that's often how we discover things like asteroids because you look at the same area of space, all the stars look like they're standing still and then something is in a different place in each of the pictures. Yeah. And it's amazing, actually, isn't it? Because that technology now, obviously, is in use in a lot of smartphones where they stack the pictures, you know, so they take bursts and they, they put all the photos together and they make the best picture. So it's a similar kind of idea what the telescopes are doing, but on a much huger scale. Yeah, yeah. And actually, it's a it's a very interesting technique. Let's say you're on your holidays. I've seen uh, some cool advice to use the same technique where you, oh, you don't want all those people in the way of your picture when you're on your holidays that uh, you're in Greece or something. So you take a pic, you set up your camera and you take multiple pictures as people are moving around. And when you stack them all together, the people disappear. But whatever was in the background that didn't move is still the same. Okay. So they just vanish out of your picture. Well, that's quite interesting, isn't it? But actually with the phone, do you have to set that up or does it say, let's take all the people out? I think you'd have to have a very smart phone to do that automatically, but there's definitely definitely yeah. software there to do. I mean, whatever's free uh, to do image stacking would work fine. Yeah, but it's quite clever, isn't it, too? Because um, it, that way you have certain filters set up. So like going back to the telescopes, obviously they're saying, well, this is what we're looking for. But it brings us to another point is that pr possibly, and, and I, I, I think I've heard this, that sometimes they're looking for one thing in particular are different things and they find other things by accident no yeah i mean then accidental discoveries is uh 
more common than people might think. You're always looking for something in particular, yeah. but you're more often than not finding when something is discovered, it's not what you were actually out for. So then, you know, you were saying that there's three parts. So when I asked you the question, you were saying there's like the mission simulation. So is that kind of how you imagine it, that you are simulating the way things are done or simulating using certain materials or explain the mission simulation? There's a huge variety of it. I, this is this is analog space research, um, which I have become quite involved in. And um, there, there's a lot of different aspects to it. Kind of every organization that's doing it is taking a different approach or has different priorities. The space agencies like ESA and NASA, they do it themselves and they're trying to cover everything or their priority is mission operations, training their astronauts, that sort of thing. Whereas uh, a lot of the independent analog research organizations might be focused on, well, how do we design the best habitat? And they keep changing the habitat design that they have so that it works better and better for the crews that they're putting into them. Uh, there's other ones that would be, okay, whoever is designing rovers, designing technology for using in space, bring it to us and we're going to test it for you. We're going to have a, a pretend version of being in space. We're going to lock people in this habitat for whatever amount of time. If they go outside, they're in a spacesuit. If they do go out in their spacesuit, they're in a desert that looks just like Mars, whatever it might be. Uh, we try to replicate the conditions of being in space as accurately as possible and give and invite people to, uh, to test their uh, technology, to study the psychology of people in these environments that are isolated like this, that don't have easy access to talking to their friends and family, who are having to work in high-intensity environments with a bunch of strangers they've only just met. So all of these aspects are part of analog research. Everything that, every aspect of doing a space mission is open to scrutiny. And that's what these analog missions are about, is simulating the experience of being in space so that we can prepare as well as possible for when we're actually there. Okay. And I see there, obviously, I was looking through your, you know, just your stuff you've done, and and I saw... Like your the, obviously the astronaut application, but then the analog moon mission, Mars simulation, the moon challenge, and the habitable planet visualization program. So a lot of those are they using people to you know obviously to study and research, and those people will probably never go to space or they'll always be kind of in that background testing, or are they looking for candidates within those programs as well for future missions? Uh, so I would say analog research is not astronaut training. It's not how you prepare to become okay. an astronaut and, and put your hand up. Hey, I've already done it in this pretend one. I'm ready to go to space. That's not really how it works. It is really much more about science and research and technology development. But that's not to say that people who are, are, are analog astronauts like myself, we obviously still have that interest. So there's a huge overlap between people who want to become astronauts and have qualifications to become astronauts and people who are doing analog research. But it is important. We, we emphasize this a lot to people who come to work in analog research. This is not astronaut boot camp. This is not preparing you or somehow bettering your odds at becoming an astronaut. This is all about science and research just as much as the person who's doing it in the lab somewhere. It's not helping you any more than them. 
we just have this interesting application. Well, of course, because I mean, when you consider, you know, in the past, you know, the Apollo missions and everything, there's so many people involved, you know, and, and of course, it boils down to, you know, the four or five crew members. And, you know, they, they're the ones who are at the center of it in, in, when it comes down to the launch and everything. There's so many team members and there's so many in, in the mission control and all of these things. But that's then the thousands and thousands of people who are involved in the production and the testing and the research. So what's quite interesting for me now is um, when you consider how becoming an astronaut has changed. So, for example, a few weeks ago, I had a, um, an RAF pilot on my show and we were talking about the training, you know, with the Typhoon fighter pilots and all of that. So in the past, a lot of astronauts would have come from the military and especially from aeronautical, you know, um, divisions and the RAF and the United States Air Force. But it, it's changed a little now because now there would be more scientists who then maybe will go to space, but then have to receive the training to withstand the conditions, no? Yeah, so being an astronaut is basically all about being the ultimate multitasker, which means also having the ultimate multi-skilled team. So there's still a place for those military professionals, for those Air Force pilots. They're normally, let's say, in the command structure or piloting the craft, but there's huge diversity in the kinds of people that become astronauts now. You actually see it quite a lot in the kinds of people who are currently progressing in ESA's ongoing astronaut selection, that there's a huge demand for people with medical and life science backgrounds because they don't have that much in the current astronaut corps. Of course, nobody comes with everything. Everyone who becomes an astronaut is only on step one and has a lot yeah. to learn from there because you do need to be that ultimate multitasker. But at the end of the day, everybody still has their specialty. Everyone has their role within the team. Everyone needs to be capable of doing a bit of everything, but every job belongs to a specific person at the same time. Yeah, there's so many different roles. And I imagine over the years, it has changed so much because, you know, nowadays the base vehicles and the rockets and whatever, they've changed so much. And once maybe they would say only the top pilots can pilot this rocket. But nowadays, maybe with the technology, they're thinking they need to be highly trained, but they also need to be very diverse. Yeah, I mean, the, di the key difference is that back in the day, it was all just about getting it done. It was something that had never been achieved before. So it was very much more in the, in the ballpark and expertise of a, a flight test pilot. You know, the kinds of people who are getting into machines that might just blow up underneath them. Those were the only, you know, that, that was all the risk of, can we even do this in the first place? And their whole objective was just to achieve it. Now it's been done. The technology is much better developed. We're working in space now for decades. We're collaborating there. Uh, and the, the priorities have shifted. It's not about, can we do this? We know we can, but what can we do there? Well, what we can do there is so incredibly diverse. We want to send people from every imaginable background up there so that we can expand our understanding and break the boundaries of what is possible on Earth by doing it in a new environment. Yes. And especially when you consider Mars being a habitable, you know, planet or any kind of um, ecosystem that's completely different from ours, you know, the other one, the, the one that's very like Earth, Kepler, is it? Or what's that one? Kepler 1b, I think, it might be one you're... Kepler 1b, yeah. Might be one you're thinking about, but um, we won't be going to exoplanets anytime. No, no, we won't be going there just yet. But when you consider, let's say, with Mars or Kepler 1b or any of these planets in, in the next thousand years, the thing about it is there will probably be astronauts and scientists going on one-way missions, no? 
I don't know. It's hard to say. Uh, I think the general preference is that one-way missions shouldn't happen. The expectation is, uh, at least with with the big organizations and the agencies, even with the likes of SpaceX, who have just this gold stamp that they want to get to Mars, and that's about as far as they've thought it through. Um, even they aren't planning one-way trips. You know, their rockets should be able to get there, get refueled, and come back. Uh, I think most sane people are, are on the boat that it's not it's not going to be a fixed one-way ticket. Um, that's not to say that some people might not go and never come back, but that that's not what's going to be planned at the outset. No, I think obviously there's the Hollywood side of it where, you know, people say, oh, well, it's a one-way trip or whatever. But I think possibly in the future, you know, when it takes so long to get places and, you know, still, there probably will be people that will say, look, I am open to that, you know, challenge. I know that maybe it's going to take so long to get there. And, you know, but I also feel that maybe when that happens, it won't be people going there. It'll be just automated spacecraft and vehicles, no? Uh, There's definitely a cohort of people who think it makes more sense to, you know, people should stay on the ground and everything we do in space should be machines. But uh, ultimately, the versatility of people and then the ability to build on that achievement and go on to the next and whatever it's, uh, you know, people are entitled to their opinions, but many of us still believe that there's we're, there's value in, in bringing people there as well and not expecting machines to do everything for us uh, remotely. So one thing I always wonder about as well, because we've seen obviously on Earth, I suppose, the cannibalizing of resources. So this is the thing I think that as SpaceX and future space commercial companies, not NASA and the ESA and the but commercial and private companies, do you think in the next, you know, whether it's 100 or 200 years, do you think that there will be companies who will manage to get to space and to certain planets and try to, you know, extract resources? Do you think that's a road that's going to, we're going to go down at some stage? For better or worse, I think that's not so far off in the future. But it's just a matter then of obviously, you know, whatever you harvest, whether it be ore, gold, oil, whatever is on those planets, of going there to get it and then coming back with it because you're talking about extremely long durations. So the payload has to be very valuable, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. To some degree, it makes a lot more sense to go out and utilize resources in space for the benefit that they can give you rather than trying to transport them back. Uh, it really depends on what, what it is that you're trying to do. But um, yeah, it's definitely, if, if you just want, let's say, rare metals or something, they better be worth a lot for you to be going to space to collect them and bring them back to Earth. Yeah, yeah. It should be noted that um, in like space law as it stands right now, now it's not universally recognized or ratified, but there are actually international treaties on space law, uh, which broadly prohibit ownership in space. So nobody, the Americans don't own the, the piece of ground on the moon where their flag is or where their landers are or whatever. They own the landers. They bathe those, they put them there, they own those, but they can't own the ground that they're on. They can't stake or claim to part to part of an asteroid or part of the moon or anything like that nobody can own things in space but if you can go and you can collect it and you can bring it back you can take ownership of it but you cannot stake claim to it in space right right i, I suppose even those kind of laws and stuff will be adapted and changed and people will question them you know because if you have china or the, the russia or the us yeah. in years to come who go there and decide okay there's it's a bit like ukraine at the moment you know it's such a, there's so many resources in that country that 
you know, it's 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 not about just politics. It's about what's there, isn't it? There, there definitely there will be complications like that. And unfortunately, you're very right that our the existing space law treaties are extremely old. Like the newest one must be decades old by this stage. They're all very obsolete. They're from a time before any of this seemed feasible. You know, the idea of going and laying claim to, to space would have been unthinkable only a few decades ago. And now it it may be on the verge of becoming reality that we will have permanent human outposts on, on other bodies like the moon, maybe Mars in the not so distant future. So these things really need updating. And unfortunately, I don't know if the world is politically ready to uh, have that discussion. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I want to ask you a question then about astrophysics, you know, in general, because obviously, you know, there's so many theories with astrophysics and, you know, space-time continuum and black holes and all of these kind of stuff. So do you think that among astrophysicists nowadays, there's a general kind of rule or do you think there's a lot of varying opinions as to, for example, you know, can we bend space-time? Can, you know, what is there, a, is there one line that a lot of people follow or is there people that are mavericks on this? A little bit of both. Uh, there's definitely real wild thinkers who who have some mad theories uh but it, within like let's say the core scientific community there's definitely a solid body of evidence that informs our fundamental understanding of the way things work and then at the fringes where we're doing active research where we're not really sure so much or we don't know how all the pieces fit together then there are generally multiple competing theories and everyone has their favorite or especially the ones that they're working in. You know, I'm researching this angle on it because this is the one that I think is going to work out or this is the one that makes the most sense to me. Um, so there are competing theories. I guess it would generally be in a sort of uh, academic good faith that, you know, you've got your belief, I've got mine. We're both here uh, trying to, to prove what is the reality, not trying to be the one who's right. Yeah, so it's all about a collaborative scientific endeavor to find the truth, not to be the one who holds up the flag first and says, I won. Yeah, but unfortunately, through history, sometimes, it, you know, it's kind of like a bit like Galileo or anything. I mean, we've there's people that are, you know, saying, oh, I have something here or I have a different idea. But people, other groups, because they've been on a one way track or on a a line of thinking can maybe discredit or doubt them because they say, no, no, there's no way it could possibly be that. But then maybe years later, it's been proved to be correct or whatever. So in a modern way of looking at that, do you think those mavericks, any of those, then maybe in 20 years ago, wow, he was right. Does that kind of happen from time to time? It does happen from time to time, but I'd be wary of thinking that just because you're a maverick means that you're going to revolutionize everything. There's, <laughs> yes. In, in, in modern, modern science, the things that we take for granted as fact are generally because we have an overwhelming amount of evidence that would be very difficult to overturn. You know, If you have an idea that requires everything we think we know to be wrong, you might want to think twice about it. But that's not to say that the next Einstein with a complete revolution in the way we see the universe isn't out there and going to really challenge established physics. But I mean, even, even in the last few decades since I finished my degrees or whatever, 
and last one decade, I should say. So I, I started my my studies. You're in, not that old in 2011, but um, yeah, it's so even in that time, I've seen already myself multiple times that a discovery or a paper has come out. It's like, wow, if this really turns out to be true, and this gets backed up by other evidence and whatever this really will mean we'll have to rethink some of the things we thought we knew. So that does happen. It's being a good scientist means being open to changing what you think you know at all times. Nothing is ever certain. And that's actually a thing in, in physics is nothing is, there's no such thing as 100% certainty. There's just a probability of, of correctness. And so normally scientific fact means that it's 99.99999 so on percent certain. But a, a good scientist will never tell you something is completely untouchably true. But I, I was watching a documentary one night, actually, and they were talking about, you know, scientific discoveries and, and modern scientists. And a few of the scientists said, unfortunately, you know, scientists are very open minded, but there does exist a kind of hierarchy. And unfortunately, it's like some people have this opinion. Don't you stray from this line we're on. Don't go from this line of thinking because, unfortunately, it discredits the work of the previous scientists. So, you know, if everyone writes a book on how things are and someone comes along and tries to disprove it or has their own theory, they are kind of challenging the work of all those previous scientists. So that kind of gets personal then, doesn't it? There is, unfortunately. You're right that there's a certain amount of interpersonal politics that can actually get in the way of good science or, or ego can get in the way of good science. But the ideal scientist isn't someone who's trying to prove someone else wrong. It's a scientist who's trying to prove their own idea wrong until they can't. That's it. I think that's it. I think, for example, if you're a scientist and you have already have all of these ideas and theories over the years and people go along with all of this, and I'm another scientist, but I'm not trying to prove you wrong. I'm just trying to prove my own theory. But unfortunately, the way the human condition is, you could be offended that I'm trying to say, well, it's not what Killian was saying. I think it's actually this, you know, so it's a, it's a lot about personality, isn't it? And being able to be open minded enough to say, well, possibly that could happen. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You should be open to every idea. And kind of the point I was trying to make is that the, the key thing in science isn't about trying to prove an idea is correct. It's about having an idea and challenging that idea and it passes every single test. And so you can't think of anything left to throw at it. If it passes every test, you start saying, well, maybe this one's right. Because if you can't make it fail, then you start to give it some credit. But it's not about it's not about saying, well, it passed this one test. It must be true. No, it's, I'm going to test it and test it and test it until I run out of ways to make it break. Yeah, yeah. And that's the correct way. So for you then, when you were doing the application process, was there a point then where you thought, okay, so this is going to happen or there's a chance of it happening or did it stall? And where are you now in that process? Is it something that you would ever continue with or you're kind of moving away from it a little? It is something that I've kind of decided to pursue back in university. So it's still something that I, I hope to achieve. I, I'm sorry to say that I have already been eliminated from the current selection process. Sorry to hear that. Uh, yeah, thanks. Uh, I think there's only maybe about 400 people still going. You know, the, la the latest figures are still a little bit in flux um, as people are still being invited on to following selection stages and so on. But there's a, only a very small fraction of the original applicants still left. So, you know, I don't feel personally offended at all to be in the 99% who haven't made it and many more still who won't. You know, at the end of the day, there's going to be less than 30 people uh, at the end of the road from 22 and a half thousand applicants. So that's an amazing achievement. 
Yeah, it, just just being one of those people who is qualified to stand up and put my hat in the ring, that's already something to be proud of and that I am proud of. So I know that I'll have another chance and I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing, keep growing yeah. and give it another shot when I get another chance. Yeah, I mean, that that's the great thing because as long as the, the door is not closed for you, I mean, because if that's something you're, you still want to do and there is options. And like I said, that former guest that was talking about the RAF, he said he applied like eight or nine times to get into the RAF training. And he said, that's it. It's not about the first time you fail. You just keep going back, he said, because you learn something from each time and you learn what to do differently and how to change it. And then age also is an advantage, isn't it? The more experience you become, then you realize, how would I do things differently? For sure. Although at some stage, age does start to hold you back a little bit. Well. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Is there a cutoff point for the age? Uh, 50 years old, so much older than you might oh, have really? imagined. Okay. Yeah, but I suppose in one way, a lot of scientists, maybe after 20 or 30 years, they're very experienced and they're very knowledgeable. And those are the people that you want on those kind of missions, no? To some degree, yes, uh, you definitely do. Uh, the, the thing is, as you get older, you uh, become exponentially harder to meet the medical requirements. Right. And you're still in good enough health to, to be fit for it. Let's say, for example, in, in NASA's case, it's actually really advantageous to be an older astronaut because there's, there's this idea, you know, one of the biggest limitations to an astronaut's career is the exposure to radiation in space that there's only so much that you're allowed to be exposed to because the impact it's going to have on your health, especially long term. Yeah. For an older astronaut, since they've so much less life already left ahead of them and they've already lived so much more of their experience, they are both more experienced and more qualified and more capable and they have much less to lose by that exposure. So they're actually allowed to expose older. This, this may be different now, but I studied the, the limits for uh, radiation exposure for astronauts in different agencies before. And NASA astronauts who were older were allowed to be exposed to more radiation because ultimately... Really? The, the longer you've been, the longer you live with that exposure, the more likely it has some negative effect on you. So if you get the same exposure in your 20s, the fact that the idea... Um, the chance that it's going to have a negative impact on you is much, much higher than you'd get the exact same dosage in your 60s. So the idea that you can get a higher dose later in life because there's much less time for it to actually do anything to you and, and result in something that would give you trouble. They'll be raiding all the nursing homes for potential candidates. They'll be like, <laughs> come on, it's a 10-year trip. You'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not, but it, it is interesting to think about Tell me then, from having worked in astrophysics and working in that field and obviously working with space agency, what do you say to all of these naysayers when they say about the whole fake moon landing? Why do you think people still have this view that things were fake? You think it's just to jump on a bandwagon? I think there's a, uh, there's a few fact, a few elements to it. I think principally it's it's such a huge accomplishment. It's such a difficult challenge that it can be difficult to imagine that someone really did it. Uh, there's there's also people love a conspiracy. They love a mystery or whatever. So, yeah. so it's it's easy to imagine how if you give them a kernel of doubt of like, yeah, but that, that's impossible. How could they possibly go up there to the moon? And it's like, yeah, yeah, how did they do that? The one big question I always had, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I believe they went. But the one question that I always have is why 
was there nothing after for years and years? I think they were secretly going. I think there was like missions that weren't publicized because, you know, if you discover something and you discover you can do it and the technology gets better, in my eyes, maybe you go secretly, not on the weekend or anything, but you kind of, you know, <laughs> make those trips every few years. Do you think there's a possibility that that happened in secret? Um I love the theory, but unfortunately, I don't think it's so you maybe you can understand how it's almost impossible to go to space without someone. <laughs> right, right, right. You know, it takes this enormous <laughs> big rocket that's making a lot of noise. It's basically a big bomb flying up through the air. Everyone, everyone is going to take notice whether it's coming their direction or not. It's a little bit hard to go up there and not be noticed by someone else. You know, you might think of your spy planes or whatever, but getting into space is tricky enough as it is without trying to do it secretly. Yes. Um, so I, I don't know that that would have happened. Why do you think, though, there was such a big gap? Was it because of finances? Um, there, there would have been multiple elements. Uh, they were only barely able to do it at the time that they did it. They were really pushing the limits of the technology. The risks were really, really high. And so for what they were able to do at that time, just collecting a few rocks, wandering around a bit on the moon, uh, there, there came a point at which it just wasn't worth the risk and the expense of continuing to do that. They did go to the moon multiple times. Not everyone's aware that it was more than one moon landing. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. But they eventually, there was only so much that they could do with the technology of that time. And there was no point continuing to do that anymore. But the technology, as you say, has improved massively since then. What we can do, what we're capable of doing, what we want to do is entirely different from what it was at that time. Really just the achievement, it was, it was the, the race, the com competition between the Soviet Union and the United States. And it was just about who won that race. And then I guess the multiple moon landings was almost about rubbing it in their face. Look, we've made it. Ha, ha, ha. But now we have entirely different things. We're not going to the moon for the sake of being there, but we have all of this research, all of these possibilities, all of the science discovery and further exploration beyond the moon that becomes so much more accessible if we go back. So there's our motives for being there and what we can and will do when we go back are entirely different from what they were. And the technology is so much more mature, which makes it so much safer and so much more affordable to do these things. So that, that to me is the gap is the, re the motivation that existed the first time we went uh, ran out of steam and we have a whole new reason to do it now. Okay, yeah. I suppose it's it's a little like Christopher Columbus going in a small boat to South America and saying, okay, I need to come back with a bigger boat, but maybe they didn't do it for years. It's kind of, I can imagine, as you said, if they went a few times and they were like, okay, there's not much more we can do with what we have and what else will we do? So they just wait and wait. It's a, it's a good analogy. It definitely would have been very similar to, you know, the first few explorers, they just sailed across, discovered, traded a few things and went back and said, guys, guys, you'll never find You'll never guess what we found. Yeah. There. And then you have the conquistas and you have the colonists, you have all of the settlers who went over and established themselves. So you've got this complete world of difference of just going and discovering and then the wave that goes and stays. Yes, yes. So obviously for astrophysicists, and people who work in, you know, the area of space exploration. What is the general thinking as regards life on other planets? Not to go down the whole UFO road, but I mean, you know, like if you think of how many planets are out there and obviously 
we don't know how many are habitable and, you know, whatever the, the closest they've found. But do you, you know, just as a scientist, do you think that we are alone or do you think there are other planets, but they're just so far away we could never, ever reach them? Most astrophysicists will give you the same answer that the universe is so unbelievably enormous that it is statistically impossible that any happen, anything happens only once. Yes. So the fact that humans exist guarantees that life exists at least one more time in the universe. And if it exists at least one more time, it's going to exist another time on top of that. Right. Yeah. Um, there, there's, a, there's a great um, piece of uh, like a thought experiment, mathematical equation called the Drake equation that kind of sums up this idea where it's just a few very basic ideas. Like what is the chance that uh, what number of planets uh, or stars exist in the in the observable universe? It's an enormous number. What number of those stars have a planet? Maybe maybe it's only one in ten of those stars, like a small fraction. Maybe it's one in a million of those stars have a planet around them. And we know now that almost all stars have planets around them, by the way. But let's say you take a very very conservative guess: one in a million stars has planets around it. How many planets? Let's say just one. What's the chance that life? develops on that planet give it a tiny tiny number what's the chance that that life starts to evolve and develop intelligence another tiny number when you bring all these things together the universe still stays being so enormous that first number is so colossal that you still end up with a prediction of thousands of species of human comparable intelligence in the universe. Yeah, it is very interesting because when you look at the vast, you know, quantity of planets and stars out there, you you kind of it's very hard to say, oh, no, we're alone because it doesn't matter what kind of life it is, whether it's intelligent life or whether it's like a just a species or whatever. But there has to be something out there. But because of the vast distances and, you know, even if, you know, SETI or any of these receive signals or, you know, messages from the past or whatever this is the problem isn't it it's like we were talking earlier about the snapshots of a moment in time we could find evidence of another planet and and some kind of existence there of some kind of life but maybe it's from thousands and thousands of years ago yeah yeah indeed if if uh, someone is looking at earth with an ultra powerful telescope that's um one million light years away they're seeing the Earth one million years ago right now. So they're, they're looking at dinosaurs. Yeah. They're not looking at and that's like the slowest telephone yeah, call ever, like isn't that. it? It's a really bad internet connection. You know, you're back to modem dialogue. <laughs> yes. So listen, I'm not going to keep you much longer. It's been a really interesting chat. One thing I wanted to ask you there, I came across, obviously, you did some extra work in Vikings too, didn't you? I was. I was an extra in, in seasons two to four of Vikings. Wow, you really do dip your toe in all the waters. <laughs> You've got to take every chance that comes your way, right? Well, I mean, this is the thing. I always say to my children, you have to just, you know, do what makes you happy and you have to experiment and explore. You don't have to be amazing at everything, but you have to look back and say, you know, oh, I did that or I tried that. And, you know, I think it makes you a much more interesting grandfather in the future. You know, like I, I always, I, I, somebody was telling <laughs> me they were talking to this old woman and she said how she used to be an exotic dancer in Moulin Rouge and she was talking about her life. And, you know, it's amazing because you look at people when they're older and you can't tell who they are or what they've been. But 
I think now, I think in the future will be great because you can say to people, oh, my God, you've done this or you've been to space or, you know, you were one of the first female pilots or whatever. So there's so much history in people's brains now, you know, in, for future, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I agree completely. It, you don't need to be great at everything you try, but you should try everything at least once. You always broaden your horizons at every opportunity. Another question I, I wanted to ask you was your area of expertise as well. You work with uh, biofuels and things like that. So is that something that's kind of in, has come about through that through astrophysics or are they linked there, there's a tenuous connection, but unfortunately, no, it's not. It's not really through my astrophysics background or or my career ambitions. But it's uh, just the reality of I need a job that covers the bills. And yeah, but, of course, you know, of it's, course, it, yeah. it is an interesting job. It's research and development. I'm still applying my scientific skill set, uh, just maybe not the space science side of it. But uh, you know that's the reality of of being in the workforce. Is you're not. It's not always what you dreamed it was going to be or what you planned it was going to be. But you take what you have, you take the toolkit you have, and you apply it to the challenge that's presented. Yes, and of course the thing is that in the future, you know, if there's ever another selection process, and they say, "Is there anybody with uh, any skills with biofuels or this stuff like?" And you'd be like, "Oh, oh actually, yeah." <laughs> so <laughs> everything we learn and everything we work at can one day come to benefit us no absolutely 100 percent. nothing is ever wasted unless you let it go to waste no no and actually with your name killian murphy does that cause some confusion sometimes less often than you might think you know uh, being international being all over the place does lead to um uh, the occasional interesting interaction of someone uh, wondering if i'm actually killian murphy the actor or you yeah. know more often than not people don't know the name but um i have actually had more occasions probably than anything else of people seeing Killian with a C and seeing a profile picture of me with my girlfriend or my wife now. Uh, and then, and then they're like, Oh, we're going to meet for the first time. And then I turn up and like, Oh, sorry. I rented a C and I thought it was going to be the woman who would show up. <laughs> oh, I understand. Yeah. It's like the Celtic and Celtic, isn't it? It's like that. Yeah. Where people go, oh, is it not the, the Celts? And I'm like, no, no, it's the Celts. The football team are Celtic. It, it's it's hard to explain, you know. It's the English yeah. sea. <laughs> so, listen, I appreciate you coming on. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And uh, I hope my my naive questions weren't too naive for you. <laughs> I have a curious no mind. And I'm sure people out there as well have these questions about astrophysics and about science and space exploration. But I think it's great you answered the questions amazingly and, and you filled us in on so many things. And um, the only question I have left for you is what's your like ambitions over the next year or two now? What do you kind of hope to, to work on? Are you going to try again maybe in the next few years? I certainly will. Uh, in the meantime, my big projects are mostly revolving around uh, becoming more and more involved in analog space research myself. I am an analog astronaut. I've done a mission myself in isolation. I'm helping to to organize and run multiple other missions. And I have plans and ambitions to bring the analog industry to Ireland and kind of start my own organization in this field some point in the future. So um yeah, that's kind of what wow. I'm gravitating around these days. That's brilliant. Well, we'll, we'll keep an eye out for that. And um, as I said, we appreciate you coming on. It's been a pleasure talking to you. A very interesting man. And, uh, you know, I'm sure your career and your future in space exploration and astrophysics will only climb and climb. So thank you very much, Killeen Murphy. And we will hopefully have you on the show again sometime soon. We appreciate it.
Thank you very much. Much appreciated. And also, if uh, anyone has any more questions or wants to get in touch and reaches out through you, you can feel free to give them my email so they can get in, get in uh, contact with me. Perfect. Yeah, we, we'll add whatever links you give us. And um, I know, obviously, I know you, you said to me, I'm going to mention this, you said to me, you're doing a, a webinar, but I think when this podcast comes out, it will be maybe finished. But the thing is, if you have webinars in the future, we can we can post links to them and we can send people towards that kind of thing. Sure, sure. For now, I, w- I guess I'll just, rather than the webinar itself, because as you say, it'll have already happened by the time this episode airs. But uh, if people look into the Austrian Space Forum or the Lunaris Research uh, Center, Lunaris Research Post, uh, anyway, Lunaris. Uh, so I'm working with both those organizations. We're the ones who are uh, working together to uh, put together this webinar. So if you look into those organizations and this is something you're interested in, uh, analog research in general specifically, then um, I'm sure you'll find more webinars, more. There's an analog astronaut conference coming up later this year, the second ever annual uh, analog conference. So there's there's a lot of movement in this field. It's something that's growing very rapidly at the moment. So if it's something that people are interested in, I invite them to just check out what organizations are out there. There's a lot of them and there's more all the time. Yes, well, I'm sure, uh, you know, not just in Ireland, but in other countries, there are lots of younger people who maybe have a taste for it or are curious about their future. And so uh, definitely, I think those things are a great thing. And we, you know, you send us whatever links for that and we will post them on. So listen, Killian, thanks a lot. Enjoy the rest of your week and stuff. And um, we will talk to you again in the future. Take care. Killian Murphy, everybody. Thank you. Okay, I hope you really enjoyed that episode. That was quite an interesting chat with Killeen and what an interesting career so far and what an interesting life. I mean, he's been all over and he's seen so many things and his future really does lie in the stars. So we want to say well done, Killeen, and we'll be watching for your star to rise and all the best. It's a big dream, but I think if anyone's going to do it, it's going to be you. So well done and make Ireland proud and Europe proud and everything. So we'll be keeping posted on all your actions over the next few years. Okay, everyone, if you like the show, remember, give us a review and share with your friends and like us on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, wherever you find us. Like Killian, we're all over the stars, all over space, so you'll find us everywhere. So thank you very much, folks, for listening. My name is Simon Kay. This is the Collective Whisper podcast, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care of yourself, your family. Bye-bye. (laughs) 